0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special Christmas episode of Speaking with Joy. Today, I'll be telling you about my yearly tradition of reading Charles Dickens' classic book, A Christmas Carol. Wherever this episode finds you, whether it's drinking a cozy mug of hot chocolate or wrapping presents or baking cookies, I hope it will bring Christmas cheer to your day and a bit of brightness in the gloom of this year. Hello, everyone, and a very Merry Christmas Eve Eve, as Eloise the Plaza would say it. I'm podcasting to you from a gray and rainy day in Oxford. This year, I'll be spending Christmas in England, which surprisingly is the first time I've spent uh, Christmas holidays in the UK, since I always go back to visit my family in the U.S. But this year, a good chunk of my family is, how shall we say... Um, stuck or blessedly here in the UK, and so rather than messing with quarantines and the wild travel that would be required, um, we, at least some of us, are hunkered down in Oxford. And Oxford is not quite its usually usual festive self, um, but it is beautiful and there are lights up everywhere, and I have really been leaning into everything that I can that is Christmassy this year. And amongst uh, the many Christmas traditions which I enjoy, one of which being making Christmas cookies, which saying that made me realize that I need to make some Christmas cookies this afternoon, one of my yearly traditions has been to read The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I don't actually remember when I started this tradition. I think my family, we enjoyed it together, but then somewhere along the way, maybe in college, I started doing it on my own, and then a couple years ago I read it out loud with my mom, and it's just been... Kind of a habit every year uh to read the christmas carol as i i come up upon upon christmas day and um it's been really fun to do that this year in particular uh because i'm spending christmas in england and it's interesting to read about the history of the christmas carol because of course dickens wrote it in a great flurry it was a very quickly written book he wrote it i think in about six weeks and like many good works of literature it was written under financial duress. Um, I, I have thought how many good books would not have been written if, if their authors did not need um, a, a check. And in this case, for Dickens, it was for his pregnant wife. Um, and he wrote it very quickly while uh, they say that much of his inspiration for it was taking these long walks that he would take late at night through uh, misty London between October and December. And it's funny, I think I've thought about that and about him getting inspiration from all these walks because walking is kind of one of the only things we can all do these days with all the regulations and rules. And um, I've laughed to myself that I don't think I'm in any great danger of gaining any Christmas weight because the only way you can really see people is to walk. And the only thing you can really do is to walk. And so I've identified with Dickens as he trotted around London, coming up with ideas for the Christmas Carol. But the other thing that's really special about the Christmas Carol is that it kind of came to define um, a Victorian ethos of Christmas that in many ways has shaped how, how we experience Christmas. Um, so there's things in there that kind of almost weren't Christmas traditions before but which became emblematic in our minds of Christmas. Um, one of those is the turkey that he buys, of course, for the Cratchits, the turkey that's as big as Tiny Tim. And turkey is really, in, as far as I can understand, weren't really a Christmas tradition in England, it tended to be a goose. Um, but after this publication, uh, this huge there came to be this huge sale of turkeys, at least I read this somewhere. And um, so it's interesting how how this kind of came to define this ethos of Christmas. And, um, and so it's a really fun book to read and to get inside of, but it's also a very poignant book. And I think every year I am always surprised by how good it is um, and how delightful it is. The first few pages always never cease to make me laugh out loud. Um, and... It is, it is a treasure and a delight to, to remember every year and to enjoy. Um, I've recently been told, also, if you are inspired to go read this, but you are more of an audiobook person, I've recently been told that Jim Dale, who does the Harry Potter books, audiobooks, has a wonderful version of The Christmas Carol that you can listen to in audiobook. Um, so I highly encourage you to sit down with the real book in your hands or Jim Dale in your ears and read this. Now, originally, I had intended to do this podcast purely for Patreon. Um, My amazing supporters, if you don't know about this, um, my Patreon are are the people who have supported me through doing this PhD. I came to a point um, a while ago where I knew I either needed to get a more full-time job to sustain myself through my PhD and I would have to quit the podcast or I needed kind of a way to be supported through the podcast. And so I started the Patreon as a way to hopefully support myself um, through having kind of these monthly patrons. And they have graciously supported me through this whole time. And so I was just going to post this this podcast on there, but then I enjoyed preparing for it too much and enjoyed reading um, The Christmas Carol too much, so I thought I would share it on the main podcast as well. Um, but all of my thanks to patrons who have who have... Uh, been the boat that has cut me afloat through these past two years as I come to the end of the PhD. So I wanted today simply to share some of the lessons from The Christmas Carol um, that I have been thinking about. And I've been thinking about how poignant this book is, particularly for this year, when celebrating Christmas can feel indulgent. It can feel too much. It can feel like, why are we doing this thing? But this is a book about about Christmas and about everything that is true and good within it. And ultimately, I think it's a book about repentance. It's a book about our capacity to choose to walk in another direction, our capacity to turn away from selfishness and sickness and um, and our focus on ourselves. And it's about the fact that we have the power to bless, to make other people's lives easier. And that we do that not as some kind of sheer force of will, But because when we realize what a gift life is, um, how much we've been given, how much we've been forgiven, it elicits in us this realization that we can, we have the power to love, to bring cheer and goodness into other people's lives. Um, And so I wanted to talk a bit about that and talk about the Christmas Carol and wish you all a Merry Christmas. Um, I know it's fun. I always get letters from people about where they listen to my podcast. So I like to imagine that many of you are listening to this this year while doing Christmassy activities, Um, whether that is wrapping presents or maybe it's just sitting under your tree with a candlelit and a cup of hot chocolate. One really should drink hot chocolate this time of year. Or maybe it's um, the Christmas endeavor of washing dishes, of which there are many during this festive time, although perhaps slightly less given our our inability to meet with as many people as we usually would. Um, But wherever you are, I hope that you will enjoy this podcast. And I hope that it will inspire you to go read Christmas Carol, which is um, to me an evergreen book, um, which persists in its meaningfulness. So if you don't know the Christmas Carol, of course, it is a little novella by Charles Dickens written in the, mm, I have this pulled up. Do I? I do. It was written in 1843. So. My goodness, nearly a hundred and seventy years ago no. Is that right? Yeah, nearly a hundred and seventy years ago. That is wild. Um and it all centers around this character named Scrooge. I don't feel guilty sharing plot spoilers because lo the book has been out for 170 years, but you should you should go read it. Um but it, it takes place around Scrooge, this um this hard-fisted hand at the grindstone, a covetous old sinner. I love the way he's described. Um, Dickens is almost Shakespearean in his use of language. When you read Dickens, you realize what a wonderful thing it is to be able to use words, and what a pleasure it is to put together a sentence that's delightful. So it's all about Scrooge, this man who is, um, he can only, he's he's a kind of a miser He's wealthy, it appears to be, but he spends money only he doesn't even spend money on himself, his his um his nephew says he doesn't even enjoy his wealth. He he is an, a tight-fisted old sinner who doesn't benefit anyone else and doesn't pay his clerk well, and is grumpy about Christmas because it's um a poor a poor chance to rob a man's pocket every year, um, meaning that he has to let his workers off. And they still get paid, and he thinks this is very unfair. So he's a kind of a hopeless case, cold-hearted old man. Um, but on this Christmas Eve, he is offered the opportunity to be redeemed. And this comes first um, in the face of a ghost. So his his old business partner comes to him as a ghost who's died seven years ago. And he sees the ponderous chains that he carries. And the great grief that this ghost has is that he has to walk through the world. I love how he puts this in the opening stave. He talks about how um all of us must walk through the world and help those who we can, but if you did if you walked through the world and you weren't warm hearted to your fellow human beings, you are you're cursed to walk about the world and know that you can't help them. So um he realizes this ghost of his old business partner that he gave himself chains because throughout his life he only cared about himself and he didn't help anyone else. And he says to Scrooge that he will have an opportunity at redemption. He'll be visited by three spirits. And of course, that's um, the spirit of Christmas past, the spirit of Christmas present, and the spirit of Christmas yet to come. And I want to kind of give the three things that stood out to me in these three staves, as it were, of the book, and kind of what they caused me to think about Especially in this year as we draw to a close. To me, the first ghost, the ghost of Christmas past, is all about the sorrow that leads to repentance. So as I've said, this whole story to me is about repentance. It's about the capacity to turn away. This can be, of course, a very religious y word that we forget what it means, but to repent literally just means to turn, to start going in an opposite direction. And even though I think um, we, we want to believe in that, whether you're religious or not, there's this sense I sometimes get in my own heart that people just can't change, that they get stuck in their ways and that they lose the capacity to change their minds, their behaviors, their selfishness. But this is a book which says, what if it were possible to change? And one of the first steps in that change for Scrooge is sorrow. And um, this comes through, so the ghost of Christmas past first takes him back to his childhood. And he sees himself as a little boy and he's in these boarding schools, which frankly sounded dreadful. Um, and there's this moment where we see that Scrooge, you know, this person who's become this hateful, self centered miser, we see him as a little boy and he is awkward and he is lonely. And while all the other boys are playing and outside and with their families, he sees himself in a schoolyard and he's all by him, in a schoolroom and he's all by himself. And he bursts into sobs. And there was something really poignant to me about this passage as I thought about it this time, because I think that one of the first steps in repenting is actually to look upon our lives and to identify the moments of grief and sorrow and to be sad about them. Because I think that when we, um, when we, when we don't grieve our own wounds, we are not willing to grieve other people's. When we say, well, that happened to me, but I didn't need to take time to grieve it or anything, then we feel like we must be that hard-hearted to others. And I think it's really significant that Scrooge, one of the first steps of his healing is being able to look at his childhood self who was lonely and abandoned and awkward and to be able to grieve that he was very sad about that. And I think that perhaps that's one of the reasons that we we don't repent, we don't turn from our actions, is that if we were really to appraise our lives as they really were, if we were really to look back on many moments, we would have to reckon with great loss, with, with things that we wish we hadn't done, things that had really cost us something and lost us something. And I think the whole kind of chapter on, on Scrooge's past is him reckoning with the things that he's lost that he had an awkward and a lonely and an exiled childhood, that he, through his own choice, um, through his own bad choices, lost the opportunity to be married to a very good woman um, who would have made him happier. And he looks back on that. And I think that what happens is that when something sad happens to us, or when we make bad choices, we don't want the enormity of it to wash over us. And so we continue to kind of build up defenses against why the choice we've made is the right one, and it becomes this way that we survive. And so to grieve, whether it's grieve the things that we've lost out of, out of no choice of our own, but also to grieve the repercussions of the choices that we've made and what we've lost because of those, would actually be a great amount of sorrow. And there's this fear that if we allow ourselves to be sad, we won't ever stop being sad. Um, but I think that, that it's necessary to do that because until we can be soft-hearted to our own experiences, we are unable to be soft-hearted to others. And we find ourselves kind of accidentally denying the needs and the wounds of others precisely because we are denying our own needs and wounds. And, and so Scrooge has to be able to look at his moments of sadness and say, that really was sad. But the other thing he does when he looks on his past is that he realizes there were also deeply good things and um, that kind of the whole point of dealing with your past is to look upon it honestly and to let it be a past to to be able to put it to sleep to rest to be thankful it was there to be sad for what wasn't good um, but to be able to put it in the past and you can't do that unless you are honestly reckoning with both the sorrows and the joys and scrooge has gone so long without doing that that he hasn't been able to move forward but i think that there is this um there is this kind of theme in the first in the first section in in the ghost of christmas past that you have to be able to to allow sorrow to lead you to repentance you have to grieve the things that have been lost the things that were lost to you the things that were lost by you um and um that there's nothing you can do to change those things uh, but that 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 you have to reckon with that before you can move to Christmas present and, and Christmas yet to come. Um, I, my humorous version of this is that I, I have a playlist that I make for Christmas every year and it has bunches of songs that I just always delight in. And one of them is Sufie and Stephen's Lumberjack Christmas. Um, it's called something like that. And at the very end, there's this chorus that says, no one can save you from Christmas's past. You'll have to love him or leave him at last. And um, that sense of, that when we come to this year, we need to embrace what has, what is past, what is behind us. Um, but sometimes that means tending to your own wounds, being sorrowful about something you haven't let yourself be sorrowful about, so that um, you can let it go and greet the future and not always be letting the sorrows that you have in the past chase you. Um, so that's one thing that I thought about. The fact that sometimes the thing that begins repentance is looking honestly upon the things that we've lost and being willing, willing to grieve those. Makes me think um, of George MacDonald's character Mara in Lilith, who is this character, Mara meaning bitterness, um, just like in the story of Ruth, and that characters to be redeemed have to go to the house of Mara, have to grieve the things they've lost before they can move forward in hope. So, the second ghost, the ghost of Christmas present, to me, the ghost of Christmas present, the gift or the truth that he brings is the incalculable goodness of life. And I use that word incalculable for a very specific reason. So the thing that we find with Scrooge, of course, is that he values his whole life according to money, according to what he can count and measure and retain and control. But this whole chapter, this merry dance through many Christmas uh, doors, I love, this gave me such an imagination for what's happening in every home on Christmas. Um, And this picture of the ghost of Christmas present, walking around and blessing all of the houses with his torch, with his magical torch of Christmas cheer, um, going back for 2000 years to the birth of Christ. Um, What it shows is that there is this joy, this excess, um, that Scrooge has been missing all of his life because he only counted the things, he only counted as worthy those things which he could um, he could contain and count and calculate. Um, it reminds me of one of my kind of life quotes. Um, you all will have heard me quote this many times before probably, but it's a passage from a book by Wendell Berry called um, Life is a Miracle. Um, and essays against modern superstition. I love that. Um, and this is what the quote says. For quite a while, it has been possible for a free and thoughtful person to, s- to treat life as mechanical or predictable or understandable. Now, almost suddenly, it is becoming clear that to reduce life to the scope of our understanding, whatever model we may use, is to enslave it, to make property of it and to put it up for sale. That is to give up on life, to keep, carry it beyond change or redemption and to increase our proximity to despair so basically what he's saying is that um, when we try to fit life into a box in which we can calculate uh, what is most important not what is most important how we can calculate what is most important according to some kind of model or method that can calculate things is to increase our proximity to despair because it's to act as though we can understand life and um, I I have a really vivid picture of this in my mind recently from watching David Attenborough's um, Life on Our Planet, and he shows the rainforests, um, which are these you know, it's crazy. There's more. They're just these immense, chaotic plants of life, right? That you have more you have more species of trees in one square mile of the rainforest than you do in the entirety of North America. And um, at first glance, it looks completely excessive and and just too much. There's plants and useless things and deadless things and all and, and different species. And it just looks chaotic. But when you actually um, press into it, these environments are what kind of keep our world at the right temperature. And each thing that is apparently chaotic actually has a role in the whole, right? That the the monkeys that that um, the orangutans, sorry, who trained their their young for ten years how to eat, are actually spreading seeds all across. And they all have this this wonderful role in the ecosystem, even though it looks um, it looks chaotic. But if you were to try to add up and calculate and divide what was important in this ecosystem, you would probably miss something. And this is contrasted with um, why the rainforests have been destroyed, right? Which is that they've been wiped out and in their place, many um, farmers have grown palm oil trees. And the reason they grow palm oil trees is because they are calculable. Their worth is calculable. You know how much money you can get for what comes from palm oil trees and how much water will take. And so you can see these vast pictures of rows of the same calculable uh, palm oil trees because you can add up what they're worth and what they matter with these vast, chaotic rainforests. But the thing is, is that the calculable nature of the palm oil um, trees is actually literally bringing death. It is destroying environments. It's changing the way that our planet operates. Um, it's killing off species. Um, and But to me, it's a perfect picture of how when we try to reduce life to something... Um, calculable to something where we can add and measure it up we actually end up bringing death and this is kind of what scrooge has done i know this is a huge tangent but this is what scrooge has done in his own life he has valued as important only those things which he could put a price tag on and what he encounters in um in the ghost of christmas present is the real true joy of life that cannot be calculated that is so much more than the sum of its parts And that to live life for all it is worth, we actually have to embrace that incalculable goodness of life. And I think that that is um, something I've really been challenged by in this season. Um, It's really, I think part of the reason we're all feeling so despairing is because um, we just spend our whole lives calculating loss. We, We see numbers counting up on COVID counts. We see numbers diving in the economy. And of course these things point to real loss, but they also just kind of make us evaluate the world according to kind of these models that increase our proximity to despair. And we forget why it is that these things are so dreadful. And that's because the reason we're so disturbed by, by deaths and, and by economies is because we know that life itself, the goodness itself is actually more potent and more beautiful and, and more wonderful than, than we can calculate. And so so Scrooge gets caught up in this wonderful self-forgetfulness of encountering the joy of the incalculable goodness of life. And he becomes literally like a little child. Uh, there's several points where he's described as kind of losing his wits, as being like a little child. And it reminds me of another passage from Wendell Berry, which I always connect in my mind from the Mad Farmer's Liberation Front, where he says, um, I'm trying to find it. Praise ignorance for that which man has not understood he has not destroyed. And so this whole section is Scrooge realizing that life is more than what you can count. It's more than than the surplus population. It's more than the debt. It's more than all these things. And that to live life as though the things that matter are only the things we can count and add up and evaluate is actually to bring death. It is to plant palm oil trees in the place of the chaotic but life-sustaining um, jungles and rainforests. Um, so that to me is is the second stave. Um, so we've talked about the sorrow that leads to repentance, the incalculable goodness of life. And finally, the last stave, the ghost of... Uh, the Christmas yet to come, to me, this is the remembrance of death. That is the gift that the third, um, that the third spirit gives. It is a haunting. It is. It's interesting. You don't usually think of Christmas stories as charming Christmas stories as being ghost stories, but this truly is a ghost story, and it is rattling down to your bones. But the whole point of this is that Scrooge has to reckon with his own mortality and that's what i think is interesting he calculates everything but into that calculation does not enter his own understanding of his own limitation he does not calculate uh, his own mortality into his evaluation of life Um, but as he reckons with his own death he realizes that he all the money he piles up will mean nothing when he dies all of these calculable things mean nothing Um, but what I love is that he begins to have this image that death while it does destroy um, it also seems to gesture or point to the fact there must be something that outlasts death I love um, Lewis in life in the atomic age he talks about how um, the reason we're afraid of an atomic bomb is because it represents to us total annihilation but then he goes on to say that you know the universe is finite, so someday the universe will end. And beyond all that, we will all die, which to us is a death of the whole universe. And so he says what we have to reckon with is the question not of if things will be annihilated, because one way or another, they will be, whether the world ends in the way we think it or not. What matters is, is there something true that will outlast death? And the whole picture of the incarnation, of Jesus entering into the world, is the idea that it is the seed, it is the turning of the tides from darkness into light, that there might be this hope that undoes the way of the world, the way of the material world, that death might not have the final word. And I love this passage as Scrooge is having his profound experience of memento mori, where he says this, "O cold, cold, rigid, dreadful death, set up thine altar here and dress it with such terrors as thou hast at thy command. For this is thy dominion, but of the loved, revered, and honored head Thou canst not turn one hair to thy dread purposes Or make one feature odious It is not the hand that is heavy And will fall down when released It is not the harsh heart and pulse still But the hand that was open, generous, and true The heart brave, warm, and tender And the pulse a man's Strike, shadow, strike, and see his good deeds Springing from the wound to sow the world with life immortal. I love that image of death striking at the good man, but that from the wound that death strikes, good deeds spring from the wound to sow the world with life immortal. And of course, that is the picture of Christ. That is the, I think he's um, meaning to do this. That is the picture of what Christ does. He comes into this world and that through giving his own life in death and the cross, Um, death cannot be overcome that the light shines the darkness the dark cannot darkness cannot overcome it and that as we live lives within within christ's um, redeeming power um, death cannot ultimately steal from us that it strikes but from the wounds it strikes in us from the open hand um we are able to begin to outlast death even as we die makes me think also we've been watching it's a wonderful life which is so beautiful and um And as George Bailey is giving away his his honeymoon money to all of his friends, there's this picture behind him that says, you can only take with you that which you have given away. And I think that that picture of generosity and a lack of fear of death comes from a knowledge that life is a gift, a gift greater than we ever could have given ourselves. And so we must live indebted to God and to everyone around us. And this great memory of death is the thing which once Scrooge awakens into the world. He realizes that he has another chance. This is his moment. And that is what brings repentance and repentance for him kind of means three things. One it means that we can change, that there's never, we're never hopeless. As long as there's life, there is hope. Uh, God is always reaching out to us, offering us the chance to turn back, to turn aside, to become something other than what we are. Um, and second of all, and this is, I think, one of the greatest gifts of this book, it is reminding us that we have the power to make other people's lives gentler, easier, more beautiful, more joyful. I think that's been something really encouraging to me. Uh, this, this season can feel really disturbing because so much of what is happening is totally out of our control and out of our hands. And all of our natural impulses to help our neighbors or see is just, it's just robbed. But something that, and so it makes us feel really out of control and increases our proximity to despair, as Wendell Berry would say. But I think that um, something that has helped me is really leaning into generosity and taking care of other people and giving good gifts, because it reminds me that though the world is dreadful and terrible, I have the power to make the life of my family, people around me, better. And I truly believe that those who are generous always have enough because God always takes care of us and, and to be with God is to, is to have enough. And so I think leaning into that incalculability of generosity, that life is incalculably good, but also leaning into the fact that you and I have the power to make people happier and better and, and to make their lives easier is such a profoundly kind of, empowering thing. It, it, it saps that feeling of helplessness from me when I know that I can make someone's life more joyful, even if it's just through sending a Christmas card. And the final thing that Scrooge is reminded of is that life is a gift, Um, that it is a gift that is too precious to be wasted and that whatever days or months or years or decades you have left to you, you should live fully savoring them and giving, giving your gift, your life back as a gift, um, because it's been given as a gift to you. So I love this book. It is a profound little book. And um, I want to end by encouraging you to lean into this season of rejoicing and of making merry. I know that in this season, it can feel like it is indulgent or useless or pointless to celebrate Christmas in its full Um in its full glory. And I know also that most of us are tired, and I'm tired too, and, and I get that. Um, but whatever way you can, I would really encourage you to lean into this season, because I think it is precisely through generosity that we, um, that we remind ourselves that life is a gift, and that we have some power in this world to make other people happy and it's through being more generous than we feel like we can that we discover that life is incalculably good and i think that that rejoicing and being generous is the most profound action of kind of rejection of the dark story um, that all the suffering in the world would tell us Um, it is it is reminding us that we can be agents of love and of fairness and of justice and of kindness. So I want to end with a quote from uh, Scrooge's nephew, with whom I heartily agree about the benefits and the merits of being generous, even though it doesn't put another penny in your pocket. So I wish you all a very Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening to end this episode. Um, I, I pray for you all. I pray for my listeners and for my patrons. And I wish you a Christmas in which you feel the nearness of God in which you know that life, this painful, strange old life, is a good gift, and that you may taste the incalculable goodness of life and of God's love for you in this season. Um, so with that, let me end with Scrooge's nephew's approval of Christmas time merriness. I am sure I've always thought of Christmas time when it has come around, apart from the veneration due its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they were really fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and it will do me good And I say, God bless it. God bless it indeed. And God bless all of you. Everyone, as Tiny Tim would say. And when it comes around, I wish you all also a very happy new year. Yes, as I'm using his music royalty-free, I must encourage you that if you're enjoying this lovely piano solo, to go check out my brother Joel Clarkson's music, Midwinter Carols, Volume 1's and 2. They are excellent, and I listen to them of my own volition, even given my sisterly bias.